Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 345. That wonderful music that opens the show and closes the show, as a matter of fact, is by the Respect Sextet. You'll find them online at respectsextet.com. They've got lots of records you can buy, and I hope you will, because the music is great and it's cool to support independent artists. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You can follow him on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com. They've got a widget you can install. Just click on the search box at allaboutjazz.com and put in All About Jazz, or no, don't do that. Put in the Jazz Session widget. And if you find it, which you will, you can install it on your website. And if you do, please let me know because I will mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. This show is membership supported. That's how it survives, and more accurately, that's how I survive. And my survival is, you know, fairly important to the continuation of the show. So if you would like either of those things to happen, please do become a member for as little as 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. I'm excited today to bring you an interview with Sue Mingus. She is, of course, the wife of the late Charles Mingus, and she's been instrumental in keeping... Charles Mingus's music alive for the year since his death. Uh, it's pretty exciting now that the fourth annual high school competition of Mingus's music is happening uh, here in New York City. Of course, it started nationwide, but it's come down to New York City now at the Manhattan School of Music. And here in February of 2012, there are a host of events uh, around this competition and celebrating the music of Charles Mingus. So I encourage you to go to thejazzsession.com and look in the show notes for this episode for links to all the information you need to check out these events. And of course, uh, the Mingus bands are at the Jazz Standard in New York City every Monday night with a regular residency. And there are three Mingus ensembles that play there. And uh, I've just been very recently and it was fantastic and I encourage you to go. We'll hear some music from Charles Mingus and then my conversation with Sue Mingus.
My guest is Sue Mingus. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you it's on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. We are uh, talking at the Jazz Standard, where the first set uh, of the Mingus Band just happened. And this month, in particular, is one all about keeping the legacy of Mingus's music alive for the next generation through a competition and a bunch of special performances. And I thought maybe we could start talking about that. Can you tell me something about the uh, the education initiative that's happening here in February? We are about to have our fourth uh, annual Mingus High School competition, um, which would, um, I'm sure, astonish all those people who, when Charles died, the general perception was that his music was just really too complicated, even for grown-ups and uh, seasoned <laughs> musicians to perform. And if they could come down now and hear these high school kids just play the life out of the music, it is so heartwarming. Uh, we have kids from around the country. They, um, they're going to be competing on Sunday, February 19th, up at the Manhattan School of Music. This has turned into a, a, an expanded um, competition festival. We have another, a number of other events related with this festival. And um, How did it get started? How did the uh, collaboration with Manhattan School get started? And how did the whole idea of bringing it to high school kids I'm get trying to remember how this started. I think I, I just wanted to copy what Wynton Marsalis did with his Ellington. It sounded like a really wonderful thing to do, and it's a way to uh, bring the music, expand the music, and bring it, <clears throat> bring it into the lives of young kids. And um, Dave Taylor, who is a bass trombone player um, and tuba player happened to mention, I, I mentioned this to him, and I had called Carnegie Hall, which would have cost a fortune to do it there. I called <laughs> Town Hall. He said, oh, you've got to meet Justin DeCiorcio. I said, who? He said, he is the head of the jazz department at the Manhattan School of Music. He will eat up this idea. So it was just a marriage made in heaven. I called Justin. Justin has done... I don't know how well-known he is, but he has done so many things to bring jazz um, into all sorts of communities. He started the jazz department at Music and Art LaGuardia School in New York City. <clears throat> he was the one that designed the Ellington High School competition for Wynton Marsalis. And so I just asked him to do the same thing for us, and he helped put it together. And um, he's right now out in California um, conducting rehearsals for the Grammy band that's going to be playing uh, at the Grammys, and so forth. <laughs> but I have uh, grabbed his attention for every year for a weekend. We do this always during President's Day weekend because we have all of the Manhattan School of Music uh, facilities and concert room halls and so forth uh, at our at our disposal. Because we have rehearsal rooms for the kids to. Um, tune up before the 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 um, competition and then the day before we have a whole day of clinics with mingus musicians um, performing in um, rhythm section clinics reed clinics brass clinics this year we're going to have a special conductor's clinic with gunther schuler and um, justin of course
does the competition work? Do the kids, uh, the bands, I should say, do they send in audition tapes and they you select do. from among them? Yeah. Okay. Schools from around the country send in audition tapes, and I have a number of our musicians and educators listen to these, and then they're they're graded and marked, and then we choose the top 12. We have four categories. What we do that's different from um, the Lincoln Center competition is we also have combos. We have um, big bands and combos, and then we have subdivisions of what we call regular schools and specialized schools. And so there are four categories. We have three top winners in each category, so there are 12 bands that compete six in the morning and six in the afternoon. And then the big deal is... Among We not only award the best uh, bands, but we have other categories, best rhythm sections, best outstanding solos. And the outstanding solos winners, which could be one or two or five or whatever, get to sit in that night, Sunday night, with the Mingus Big Band here at the Jazz Standard. Oh, that's and fantastic. And it is thrilling. <laughs> now, there's also scholarships awarded in There's also a $33,000 scholarship that Manhattan School of Music has offered uh, to the lucky individual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say so. <laughs> now, you said at the very beginning that uh, when Mingus died, people thought his music would be too hard even for adults to play, let alone yeah. for younger people, which obviously has proven to be untrue in the 30 years since. But I wonder, is there any kind of special... Uh, kind of explanation or context that you have to give to high school kids to put Mingus's music and the spirit that embodies it, the kind of very individualistic spirit, in context for them when they play? I think one of the unique things about Mingus's music, and probably what kids really relate to, is this openness that is written into the music, which just demands you to come in and play. Charles used to yell to, at his musicians, play yourself, play yourself. And there, there's this open space where you, you better come in and have something to say. And it's very challenging. It's not necessarily for everyone, but people that play in these Mingus bands are a certain breed, I have to say, that like a challenge and that like the risk. And also the music is not easy. I mean, it's complex music, but is very, as we see, certainly approachable if you're the kind of person that wants to really jump into this music and and um, tell us who you are. Um, and what was the other thing I was going to mention when you were saying? Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, I think Charles would not be a bit surprised at, at what has happened. But when he was dying, he, he had a, a terminal disease called Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And he was in a wheelchair at home, and we had... Um, a nurse who was from Jamaica who knew nothing about jazz. And she was working in the kitchen one day and humming the most complex Mingus tunes, Totomoto, Cumbian Jazz Fusion. And Charles looked up and he laughed and he said, you see, because she heard he used to play this music over and over all day long. And he said, you see, if they played us on the radio, people would hum us like the Beatles. <laughs> And that really is the bottom line. You know, if you hear that it's complex because people don't hear it that often. If you heard Mingus every day, you would be humming him like the Beatles, as he said. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a fantastic line.
in this age now to kind of shift gears a little bit in this age where there are a million people downloading music for free online and artist music is being distributed often without their permission i think of you because uh, i remember in i think it was the early 90s now when revenge first started and you were the first person i ever knew to say i'm going to attempt to put a stop to the illegal distribution of someone's music and i'm going to put it out myself so that you can actually buy it and support the artist and the artist's estate Uh, and i wonder as you look around now did revenge seem far ahead of its time and i've seen some other people do it now i think of art pepper's wife Lori, who has widow's taste but you seem to be quite ahead of the curve in terms of protecting that was them jason (laughs) (laughs) i see now how old-fashioned i was then because at the time, I was trying to protect something that today we know is absolutely unprotectable. Mm. I've gone over to the other side. I realized this. I was at a forum at the New York Public Library where there were two sides. One was Google, and the other, and I've also written a book, uh, a memoir, and yes. so I should have been the other side represented authors and publishers. And um, Google at the time was trying to make available to the world at large all these archives from uh, colleges in uh, Harvard, I don't remember, in Boston. I mean, huge amounts of information. Books that they were scanning, effectively. So you yeah, that they were online. scanning, right. you know, of history and literature and all kinds of things. And I thought, wow, I'm all for that. And meanwhile, on the other side of the podium <laughs> were the people that I, whose side I should have been having had a company called Revenge Records and having gone after so-called pirates. And I realized how things change. You know, you can't, um, you can't stop the tide. And I have no answer for this. I have no answer how we're going to protect copyrights because um, everything is available. I mean, every day I see stuff of Mangus's on YouTube. I, it, it's available everywhere. And if you start to worry about it, you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> Or a liver, some horrible liver disease will take over. So you just, I mean, this is the way it is. Be my guest. People used to come into the club with cameras and recording equipment, and we would tell them, you know, they had to stop, or we would take the rolls of film or whatever. Now we say, be my guest. You know, it's going to be on YouTube the next day. This is the world. So I have no idea how, the only reason why you have to protect, how are you going to protect the imagination. How you can protect creative thought? Because if you can't pay the rent with your your the book you're writing or the music you're composing, if there's no way of protecting this, what is going to encourage any? We're going to lose all our artists, all our creative thinkers. And I'm trying to imagine: Are we? Is the government going to subsidize artists? And then you can imagine an artist proving to some federal clerk. <laughs> Why he's an argument? Hey, man, you know, and I and he reads his poetry to this government clerk right. whose eyes are just ro- rolling right. in, in a non-comprehension. <laughs> yeah, I would have I'm, loved to have seen Charles attempt to make a pitch <laughs> to the government about his. How music. are you gonna? How are you going to protect the imagination mm. if if everything belongs to everybody?
given everything you've just said, what do you see as your role you know, vis-a-vis Charles' music? I think I've abdicated. Oh, my role? Well, what we're doing is making the music available uh, as performance. I mean, that's what's happening now. You know, it's harder and harder uh, to sell records. Nobody wants to really... The musicians wanted to make a record about something, and I said, are you kidding? I mean, it's... <laughs> I don't know. I, I think right now the emphasis is on performance rather than record, unless you record at your concert. The day that we can actually record and manufacture hundreds or thousands of records on site and sell them at the gate as people are leaving the concert, then you might be, you know, here, buy your experience, buy the experience you just had, you know, we'll, we'll sell you a disc. But other than that, um, I don't know where where music is, how money is going to be made when you can't sell what you create. Mm. I interviewed the saxophonist Tim Byrne the other day, and we were talking about this very same subject. He had brought it up, and he said he thought one advantage that jazz people have is that they have a an, an audience that is manageable enough in size that they could actually appeal to the audience and say – this is not what I'm doing while I'm also a doctor. This is what I do for a living. And so I need you, rather than stealing the music, to buy the music. And he thought that unlike pop stars who could never reach all of their audience, he thought that jazz had a, a kind of a manageable task. I wonder if you have any reaction to that, the idea that it's possible to reach out and actually convince the fans to support the music by purchasing rather than... I remember when I was going after the pirates, the musicians were the first ones who would go out and buy those records. <laughs> <laughs> Because the pirates were so smart. You know, they would put out stuff that people really wanted. And and I always looked in horror when I'd be <laughs> in musicians' home. They had all the pirate records. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. Well, on a, on a less uh, dismal topic, uh, I remember when I first started listening to jazz uh, as a young person about, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago, and uh, Mingus Aum was one of the first records I ever heard, and... <laughs> That record sounds as vital today as it ever did, and Mingus's music to me sounds as vital as it ever did. And it is still all of my friends who are into jazz still listen to it. I listen to Mingus music when I have my non-jazz friends around, and they always like it. I wonder, if, do you have any idea, after all the thousands of hours you've spent dealing with this music, what it is that has kept it so alive? Besides you, obviously. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you would explain this to me. <laughs> How can you explain it? it it's, I think anything completely original, maybe. But when does it stop being completely original? Mm. I don't know. Charles's music is fresh as you... Tonight, we were listening to a, a version of the Mingus Band performing, and you can see what fun the guys are having. And it's still challenging uh, 50 years later, 75 years later. And I guess you can... Uh, something that's truly original... You know, we're still listening to Beethoven and Mozart. We're still really reading Shakespeare and performing his plays. I mean, every day in the New York Times, there's a quote. There's something that you recognize from Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so. I, I was noticing tonight that, uh, especially on Ecclesiastics, I think, was the moment that it happened the most for me, that the the band, even now, to me, has the sense, and I, I, I was born just a couple of years before Mingus died, so I never got to see him or his band live, but it has what I imagine to be the feel of like the old yeah. workshop bands where you can tell some of it is being worked out in the moment and that's great. And you can also tell that everyone is totally present in the moment. And it seems, it seems very exciting, even though this is music that's been played many, many, many times. 
I think Charles is there in the middle of the music screaming at them, <laughs> threatening them. <laughs> I think he's there. They say this. They, they, uh, they feel his presence on the bandstand. The um, trombone playing vocalist, uh, Kumba Frank Lacey, said one time. I mean, he was absolutely, he said Charles was threatening him on the bandstand. And bass players particularly feel this presence and try to escape it, I think. Yeah, I always wonder what but, it must be like to be the bassist <laughs> in the Mingus band. But I think there's something in the music that's so personal mm. and powerful that it, it spills over into the music even today, decades after Charles died. have now been uh the the head of this mingus legacy for in many cases the entire lives of people my age and younger and i wonder if is does it ever surprise you when you wake up in the morning and think oh wow this is i never expected that this is what my life would become would be to to be kind of at the head of this ship this enormous musical ship do you ever think this isn't what no, i thought it was happen? accident i really there has not been a big design or plan right. And I'm writing, I mean, I'm, I horrified the, the musicians one night when we were drinking late at the bar, and as, I, as Craig Handy said the next day, well, the cat's out of the bag, because I admitted that I would rather be home reading or writing. I said, I love the music. It's not that I don't love the music. But I, you know, my, I have other interests, too. Sure. And somehow I've been privileged to be involved quite accidentally in the center. I don't know what Charles would think. If he were here, I would probably be out the window in two minutes. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure he would be delighted, be, and I'm and I think completely unsurprised that his music is still so vital and arouses the passions of these musicians that are playing it. And I don't know. It's I'm kind of I don't know how it happened that I'm here. Mm. <laughs> But it's the music that is keeping the ship going, you know, and I'm kind of here involved, but um, I think it would be here no matter what. I don't, I'm, Will you talk about it's your... not due to me. Sure. Will you uh, talk about your memoir and the experience of, of writing it? Well, I've always been kind of a closet writer. I had a... Um, it's so frightening to write. I find it very terrifying. Um, How so? I... 
Because there's this thin line between uh, you have to expose yourself. This is the most important thing, and this is very frightening. And at the same time, you have to be aware of not overindulging. Mm. And you have to keep this balance between going overboard and really telling too much and being honest and open and exposing yourself, throwing off your clothes. And it's a very tenuous, a very frightening, uh, the great Harold Bloom, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a critic and Shakespeare scholar. He's been teaching at Yale for over half a century. And I was talking to him one day and he said it's frightening for him too. And of course he has written endless books of criticism and uh, he's working in a play right now of Walt Whitman. But it's frightening. And doing anything that ex- maybe not for the musicians. I can't imagine them being frightened of anything. Mm. <laughs> did you find uh, did you find when you came to write the memoir that there were uh, there were things that clarified themselves for you. Once oh, you had always. To... I think this is. I mean, I'm not a professional writer, so what I'm saying pertains really just for me. But I've, writing for me is a an entry into uh, all the secrets, all kinds of things that I hadn't thought about. Even my own family, my childhood. It's amazing when you start to write the discoveries that you make mm. the nuggets as as dennis potter who was a british television genius if those aren't contradictory <laughs> terms but he did marvelous things on tv and i remember he was uh, saying one time about uh, you have to go over and over and over and dig th- through the 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 earth and you will uncover these nuggets if you keep going or retracing your steps over the same the same memories you have, if you keep going over them, you will make all these unbelievable discoveries. Mm. And that's what happens for me writing. Other people experience this in other ways, but certainly that's one of the wonderful and frightening. It's also it also going to be very frightening to sit down and write when you realize what's going to happen. You're going to uncover <laughs> things you might not want to know about. And did you keep a journal through the years? Did I you did. have something to go back I've to? I've always kept a journal. Okay, so you had you weren't relying purely on your own no. memory for all that. And my family thinks I invented everything. It's really horrible. <laughs> they, they they think I'm my brothers. My they think I made up everything, and it's it's utter truth. People, <laughs> people who. You mean who lived through some of the same experiences and had a totally other perception well, of what they were? Well, that's the interesting thing. Mm. I mean, Charles, for example, could tell you the same story ten different ways. You were there, but he, every time he would retell it, he would see it from a different slant, mm. a different perspective, and it, because he had this enormous imagination that viewed things through a different prism every time he was telling you the same tired old facts. They were <laughs> they sprang to life in a different way.
Can you give me some idea of what might be ahead for uh, for the Mingus legacy? What's happening f- uh, for the band, and what do you see coming in the future? I don't know. You know, the gigs are drying up around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not as much action. Um, we have a lot of one shot. We don't have the traditional tours we used to have. Asia is probably the last uh, mecca for jazz these days. Um, we do more tours in Asia. Then we're going to Korea and Taiwan and Tokyo in a few months, and we were there recently. This Monday night uh, gig that we have here in New York is absolutely blessed. It's wonderful. We have three different bands, and they alternate. So there's an opportunity to hear Mingus translated in these three different um, ensembles that we have: the Mingus Big Band. Which is the best known in the, the, and, um, the Mingus Orchestra, which is the one with the funny instruments that was playing tonight <laughs> with the bassoon and bass clarinet and French horn that you don't normally hear in jazz. Instruments Charles loved and wrote into his masterwork epitaph, this almost three hour work that he, um, never got performed in during his lifetime. He said he wrote it for his tombstone, which is why he called it epitaph. And then the Mingus Dynasty, the seven-piece band. So we get to, to these bands get to perform here in New York City every Monday, and that's the good news. Mm-hmm. And you could really see, uh, finally, as we wrap up, I, I thought you could really see in the faces of people tonight that the Standard is a is a well-known club, so I think it gets a fair amount of tourist trade besides just the regular New York club goers. And like for me, this is as close as I'll ever yeah. get to the music of Mingus. And it means something to me because of that, that it might not otherwise, because that music means a lot to me. And I think you can kind of see in the faces of other people that there are a lot of people hearing this music live and they can't any other way. And it's, I think it's pretty amazing that it exists. I think it has a real emotional impact for, for the people who listen to it. That's it's not really a, a question. Mo- <laughs> I think it's so personal and varied and, and full of passion. And certainly this, I mean, the musicians feel it, and and what they feel the audience relates to. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think we we certainly are tourists here, but there is a real feeling of family, like we used to have when we played at a club called the Time Cafe, Fez, here in New York City. We were there for a dozen years, and it really was a family feeling where there were people that came back and came back and came back every week. And we have, I have to say that we have this feeling now at the Jazz Standard, which we haven't had since we left uh, the Time Cafe, that it's not just tourists that sure. are coming here, but there are repeaters, there are people that have been here and had a really good time and tell their friends and they come back again. And it's a very warm club. It's, it's uh, Danny Myers, uh, always talks about hospitality it's one of the most important things to him and you feel that when you come into the club we should say he's the owner of the 
club in Danny the restaurant. Danny Myers right. is a restaurateur here in New York who has 10 or 11 or 12 of the <laughs> most wonderful restaurants. And also Blue Smoke, which is a which we share, the J.S. Standard and Blue Smoke are married together. And mm-hmm. Danny Myers is the owner. Well, my guest is Sue Mingus. It's, uh, it's such an honor to talk to you, and I thank you for everything you've done for the music. And well, I thank you so back. much for being interested. Thanks, okay. Sue. music from charles mingus and my thanks to sue mingus for taking the time to be on the show i'm jason crane this is the jazz session sponsored by matt rock murat verdi and nicholas payton please do become a member if you can afford it the show is free to listen to it isn't free to make and i would appreciate your help in keeping it going with your membership at the jazz slash join and meanwhile let's keep the music alive by getting out there and supporting live jazz whenever and wherever you can And then please come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.